0: Lord, we thank you so much for today, this weekend, as we're celebrating our independence as a country. We're grateful for everything that you were able to do through that process to be able to get us to the point where we could have religious freedom and all of the wonderful things that we are able to enjoy as Americans. I ask that you be with us today as we're going to our, going back to our study and trying to interact with all of these opposing viewpoints. As always, Lord, I pray for discernment. I pray for empowerment as we're trying to understand exactly what your word means, as we're looking to your word as the ultimate authority and basis for everything that we choose to believe. And we ask that you have your word work in a conforming manner to help us to truly understand you better at the end of the day. We pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, good morning everybody. We're getting back into the study of the rapture of the church, just by way of review. Um, We spent a heck of a lot of time on the subject of imminence, which is this idea that uh, Jesus could come back at any moment for his church, that there's no prophesied event that has to take place before he could return. Now we spent quite a bit of time on that, because any position that is not pre-tribulational disputes this idea. So in order to prove that Jesus does, in fact, give us this air of expectancy, of us looking towards the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we go through the New Testament in order to find that information. And it's not like we find it in one or two places. It's all over the New Testament. It's continuous throughout Scripture. And we see that in pretty, uh, I would say, abundant manner throughout the New Testament, Now, what's interesting is that we don't live in a vacuum. And just because we're able to find scriptures that we believe that support our position, that doesn't mean that other people don't have objections to that. So we spent quite a bit of time. I actually kept this short um, because the arguments are endless. But these are the generally I would consider to be the best biblical and philosophical arguments against the idea of eminence. So we went through these one at a time in probably way, way more detail than we needed to, and we came to the conclusion that they didn't hold weight in a convincing manner when compared to what the New Testament has to say about the pre-tribulational rapture of the church and the idea of eminence in particular. Now, that being said, as Flushing Bible Church, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. What that means And there are a few things that are important to note as we're going through this. The first thing is who it concerns. Now, this is abundantly clear if you look in the New Testament. And these three verses that are, or three, I would call them clusters of verses that are talked about in 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and John, is that these are concerning those in Christ. In Christ does not mean Abraham. In Christ does not mean tribulation saints. In Christ refers to those who are in the body of Christ, which would be the church. Why is that important? Well, if it means anything other than those in the body of Christ, then this rapture could apply to anyone. And so why are we to say this is going to be a pre-tribulational rapture for the church? Again, those things are really important to note as we're going through these things. Now, if you trace that idea of being in Christ throughout the New Testament, what you're going to come to the conclusion of is that it is a technical term for the church. So, just kind of keep that in mind. Now, when we're looking through the New Testament at these verses and other verses pertaining to the coming of the Lord, we actually see that there are no signs stated which have to take place before the rapture. Now, obviously, there are signs that are prophesied in the Old Testament that have, in fact, taken place. They didn't have to, but they did. Like the regathering of Israel, which is happening right now in unbelief into the land, that's a prophesied event. It didn't have to take place. We could have been raptured before it happened. But alas, we're able to see the Old Testament still coming into prophetic fruition in our day and age, which is kind of cool. Um, That being said... Not only do we have this description of the rapture in the 3 verses and this idea that there are no signs that have to take place before it occurs, we also have an end date. We have a time in which it has to occur by. We have a promise in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 9 through 10, and Revelation 3 verse 10 that actually says that we are not eligible to be within the tribulational period. We are exempt from the time The time of the distress, which is to come upon the whole world. Not just the distress in general, not just those things. We're actually exempt from the time. Now, we spent quite a bit of time on that before, so I'm not going to reiterate all of that. Um, But we have one more thing, which is that we have been told explicably in the New Testament that we are to wait for the coming of the Lord. We are to wait for Jesus Christ. We are not to wait for the Antichrist. And so that's kind of the sandwich that we understand the pre-tribulational rapture to be in terms of a summary. That being said, just again, just because we have a position, we believe it's absolutely biblical, and we believe that we're taking that out of Scripture and adopting it on the basis of Scripture, doesn't mean that other people don't agree. Now, the portion of the study that we're actually in right now, is we're looking at the post-tribulational rapture perspective. Now, just by way of reminder, the post-trib group believes that Jesus is going to rapture his church. They just believe it happens at the end of the tribulational period. And they believe another name for the, for the rapture is the second coming. So they believe the second coming actually encompasses several events at once, one of which would be the rapture, the catching up of saints, but it would also encompass the saints' escorting Jesus back to the earth for Armageddon. We would say that is wrong. And we have a lot of reasons for why we believe that. But, again, we could critique bits and parts of their position, but that doesn't really give us the full picture of why they believe what they believe and what they actually believe. So that we're not arguing against a straw man, what we've been spending time on, and I do mean time, if you've been here for the past three weeks, we've been looking through quote after quote, probably about 15 to 20 quotes. Um, Not just what they believe in terms of the rapture, um, but more specifically, how they handle our verses. So how they handle 1 Thessalonians. Um, We haven't gotten into Revelation yet, but 2 Thessalonians, and these main core verses that pertain to the coming of the Lord, how they handle those verses are what we really care about. Now, we can hear a philosophical argument about why they believe what they believe, but at the end of the day, we're not basing the legitimacy of their belief based upon the strength of their argument. We're basing it off of how they handle Scripture and how they handle the verses that we, we see conspicuously the coming of the Lord for his church before the tribulational period. Now, we've been studying specifically two people. We've been sp- studying mostly Douglas Moo, but we've also been studi- studying Bob Gundry. And the reason for that is because most people within the post-trip group will go to these two people as references for why they believe what they believe. So in order to truly understand what they believe, we have to go to the best representations of their viewpoint. So we've been talking about that in a lot of detail. So what we're going to do is we're going to end or begin where, we're, where we ended last week, which is reading their last quote. And then we're going to go into what I would consider to be five... Primary Arguments for Post-Tribulationalism. We're going to start that section. So let's read what they have to say about the basis for post-tribulationalism. Now this is uh, finishing what we talked about last week, where we discussed um, why they, generally speaking, and we're, we're talking large brushstrokes, not, not small details, why they believe what they believe. And so this is Douglas Moo speaking when he says, since this is the case, an approach to the topic that assumes no particular view on this ecclesiological question cannot be deemed illegitimate. Furthermore, such an approach is to be preferred because it paves the way for more objective exegesis of the relevant texts. To begin with, a particular view of the relationship of Israel and the church can too easily lead to circular reasoning. We're going to pause there. Why does he say that as it pertains to post-tribulationalism? Well, one of the uh, points that we made very early on is that in terms of a distinction between the church and Israel, we looked at how each of those groups uh, had a connection to the tribulational period. Both have promises about their past, present, and future, and the tribulational period is mentioned within those three categories. So it's important to know the difference. What did we actually talk about? Right? We talked about the fact that Israel actually is has to go through the trib because the tribulational period provides a service for Israel that will ultimately end up with the remnant going through the end of the trib, which will make it so that all of those covenants that we spend so much time talking about can come to fruition through the nation of Israel in the kingdom. We know that two-thirds of Israel that is going to be basically cut off in the midst of the tribulational period. So, I mean, it's a pretty sad time, but they have to go through it because as a nation, I'm not talking about individual Israelites, because if you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you believe in Jesus as your Messiah, you are a member of the church today. And that doesn't strip you of your Jewish heritage or your lineage, but what it does is it means you are a Messianic Jew, you are a believing Jew, which puts you at odds because there are are far more unbelieving Jews than there are believing Jews. Um, And it's always a blessing when one of them gets saved. But that being said, um, that distinction still holds. Where the church, we're not promised any such thing. We don't need to be stripped off so the remnant of the church goes through the trib. We, as a church, though we have people that are maybe submitting to the Lord more than others in their daily walks, that doesn't distinguish saved and unsaved. Where we only have believers in the church. We only have people who trusted in Jesus for their salvation. Israel has always had believers and unbelievers. There's always been a large bulk of them that didn't believe God. You can see that anywhere throughout history. God was a good luck charm. The temple was a good luck charm to those people. And you always had a small remnant of believing Israelites who trusted in God. Very different from the church. So the trib serves a purpose for Israel. It does not serve a purpose for the church. We're going to be getting into that later because post-trib people would disagree with that because they believe that it is the church evangelizing in the midst of the trib that ends up giving you your 144,000 Jewish witnesses, which they symbolize to just mean the Jews. Um, they don't, a lot of them don't believe that's a literal number. So we'll go into a little bit more detail later, but just kind of keep that in mind. When he talks about it paving the logic for circular reasoning, he's actually saying that because there, are, there have been some people within pre-tribulational rapture perspective, that are sloppy with their wording. They've said, well, church can't be in the trib because that's for Israel. And that's where they summarize it, and that's where they leave it. Well, that doesn't prove anything. You just you've made a position. Is it technically true? Kind of, in a sense, but that doesn't prove your point. So a lot of uh, not first-generation people, the people that actually studied the material, second-generation people that heard it offhand, that were giving a, a basis for their argument, those are the people that actually have those lines of reasoning. So anyway, we'll get into that in a little bit. We'll continue. He said, One argues that such and such a text cannot refer to the church because it describes the Great Tribulation, which is only for Israel. That's the point I was bringing up. Um, He says, But one can know that it is exclusively for Israel only on the basis of an exegetical treatment of every relevant passage, including the one under scrutiny. Certainly, it is preferable basis uh, preferable to draw tentative conclusions on the larger theological issue, Israel and the church, only after the exegesis has been carried out. Inasmuch as the rapture is clearly revealed only in the New Testament, the the decisive evidence for this timing with respect to the tribulation must come from the New Testament also. Furthermore, it is sound hermeneutical procedure to establish a doctrine on the basis of the text that speaks most directly on the issue. Thus, the major part of the paper will be devoted to an exegesis of the texts. However, some foundational issues must be addressed before this important task is begun. While it is the message of both the Old and New Testament that the saints experienced tribulation throughout history, both clearly speak of a climactic time of tribulation that will immediately precede the second Advent. Again, we looked, and this is this is kind of like uh, an afterthought. This preceded everything we talked about with our texts. But what we noticed, and I I keep harping on this because this is so vitally important, is they don't handle John 14 well. That's something that we're really gonna um, emphasize as we're going through because none of them do. None of the people within the post-trib group are able to really handle that passage. Because it indicates what? It indicates that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. And then he's going to come to receive us to himself. So if receiving us to himself just means having us appear in the air with him and then escorting him back to earth. there are still a bunch of places he created for us that are useless. And they don't give a good reason or biblical response as to why he's even creating these dwelling places in heaven to begin with. So that's really the core of the problem with their perspective. So that being said, I found a website, and I, of course, forgot to note it here, um, that gives five main reasons for the post-trib rapture. Um, there's some Baptist church in the South, and this is their, they do a pretty good presentation. And I, f- I felt that this was a very good representation of their viewpoint. So we're going to be going through all five of their main arguments. And I, I took one of their arguments out, and I replaced it with, with a better one, so that's going to be the fifth argument. Or the, I'm sorry, the fourth argument. So in any case, <clears throat> argument number one, we're 15 minutes in, first argument that we're going to be going into today. Their initial premise of this argument is that it is possible for God to choose to protect his people from his wrath during the tribulational period. Why do they believe this? Well, reason number one is since God's people are exempt from his wrath, they quote one of our texts, in First Thessalonians 5, he will offer them protection through this period. They quote a verse in Isaiah 26, verses 20 through 21. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, you can probably, yeah, we'll wait to turn there because I might have you turn somewhere else first. They then say precedent is set for this through the situation of the Exodus, where Israel was protected in Goshen while the Egyptians were put through God's wrath through the plagues. So, since the Israelites were clearly present during the time of God's wrath, we can assume the pre-tribulational argument that God's people can't be present for the time of God's wrath. Um, what do you, I probably mistyped that. They're saying we can assume that we can be present for this time on the basis of the precedent set in Exodus, and this, uh, in their mind, a very vague verse in Isaiah. We'll get into the Isaiah verse Pretty carefully too. So, so how would we how would we respond to that? Like, how do we give a good answer to that question? I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense. You're talking about how well in times of God's wrath, because the plagues were certainly God's wrath, right? Um, there were believers in God that were present. So why why on earth uh, would we say that? Well, there are a couple things. Before we even get into that, first of all, <laughs> these are all loose representations of history. If you think about Exodus, were there only believers in Israel that were protected from the plagues? No, there weren't just believers. In fact, we don't even see them all believing as a group until they actually cross the sea. Um, That is when it says they believed in God and basically worshiped him. Same wording that's used in Genesis 15 in response to Abraham where he believed God. Okay, So we know they were believers at that point. But that is post all of the plagues, post him saving them with the pillar of fire and actually drawing them out. So after all those things, they trusted in him because this God literally not only protected them, he preserved them, he delivered them. It's the biggest and most clear presentation of redemption in the entire Bible. But when they were in Egypt, in Goshen, they were not all believing Israelites. They were both believing and unbelieving Israelites. And we see a little bit of that in how they interact with Aaron and Moses during that time period. I welcome you to read that, uh, to look at if you want to study that in a little bit more detail. But that's, that's my paraphrastic representation of it. So um, that being said, how, how should we respond to this? Well, first point, let's turn to Isaiah. So if you want to jump to Isaiah 26, that's where we are going to begin today, since they're the ones that are bringing it up. And the the main verses that are talked about are verses 20 and 21. So we're not going to read through all of it, but we'll read their main verses and we'll kind of talk a little bit about it. It says, come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while. While until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So a couple things about that. Um, Is that talking about the tribulational period? I would argue that it is. A lot of commentators would argue this is talking about the trib. But when it's talking about his people, it doesn't say come the church and Israel, it says, come my people. Now, who is the my people that is being discussed in the book of Isaiah? I see a hand raised in the background. She's probably going to say Israel, and she'd be right to do so. So when it's saying this, this is actually, and we're going to be looking at this in a little bit more detail, um, they're never stated to be the church, because did the church exist then? No, of course they didn't. This was roughly, if I'm remembering correctly, over 600 years before The church was even in existence. So when we're talking about this, we kind of have to keep that into perspective. But if they're just bringing up a verse from the Old Testament, and they blended the lines between the church and Israel, saying that we're both the people of God, they can bring in these arguments and just say, well, you can see we have a promise that we're going to be protected throughout the trib. Um, So I wrote, though there are those who would suggest that this is indicative of the presence of Christians in the trib due to the protection of those mentioned, it is far more in line with the text to see this as God's promise to protect Israel. Now, we're going to support that. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20. I never said we would efficiently go through these points. We're going to bounce all the way around the Bible. Um, And I think that's certainly called for rather than just quoting scriptures and moving on. I want to make sure we all really truly understand this. Um, even though I don't think that verse exists goodness gracious, I did it again what? Ezra Ezra. it's Ezekiel, I'm so sorry I I went to Exodus see, there's the fact checkers helping me out again so Oh, I can make that bigger. Okay. I was looking at a little screen. That's why I couldn't read it. I thought it said Exodus, but it clearly says Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel chapter 20. It's sad because we were right there, right, right in Isaiah just a second ago. Anyway, Ezekiel chapter 20, starting in verse 33. It says, As I live declares the Lord surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Now this is super important. What did he just say with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Keep that in mind as I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God, and I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn and they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So why does he say that? Well, this is talking about separation of believers and unbelievers in Israel. But more specifically, keep in mind that what he's also promising is that he, with wrath poured out, is actually going to be preserving Israel through this so that this event can happen. We see that in later texts as well. Um, Let's go to Zechariah now that it's big enough and I can read it. So in Zechariah chapter 13, we'll we'll read verse 9. It says, we'll actually start in verse 7. It says, "'Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that the two parts in it will be cut off and perish.' But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So, what point am I trying to make by bringing these up? What I'm trying to show you is that in Isaiah, it's talking about protecting those in Israel, because ultimately the remnant is protected largely. Obviously, you're going to have martyrs. It's been argued that those are both, both going to be Jews and Gentiles, but the remnant as a whole is going to be protected. And as it says here very clearly, two-thirds of the nation are going to be cut off. So it's not that the entire nation of Israel is protected, obviously. I've actually heard people say no one in Israel will die. Um, I actually, it's, I think, yeah, I'm not going to call names, but I've, I've heard people say that, and they, they try to support this position, Um, based upon the verse in Romans that says all of Israel will be saved. Um, Very different, very different indeed. So just kind of keep in mind, that's what's largely being promised in Isaiah. We'll go to Hosea, and then I want to go to Romans 10, um, even though there are other verses we could bring bring out on that. So let's go to Hosea chapter 5. So it says in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So what is this referring to? Well, this is referring to the tribulational period where they're going to have immense pressure and they're basically going to be facing their doom except for the fact that they see the immediate physical testimony of God's providing hand protecting them through the tribulational period they should not survive nobody in Israel should survive with the demonic horde that goes against the nation of Israel during the tribulational period it is because of God that they are sustained it is by his for his glory that he's able to do that and it says in Matthew 23 verse 39 for I say to you Jesus, having just run the Pharisees through a cheese grater throughout chapter 23, says, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, you're not going to see the king until this happens, until this takes place, which sadly happens during the tribulational period. Um, Romans chapter 10 is where I want to go next, just to kind of make this point. says in Romans 10, starting in verse 13, it says, um, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Um, It was actually, there's a, I don't know if it's actually fact or myth, but back in the twenties. There was actually, it's reported, there was a man who spent $8,000 putting Bibles into Petra because he wanted to make sure they knew who was saving them if that's where they ended up going. Um, I doubt they're still there if that even happened, but the premise is there, where God's going to be doing these things, and God is the one who gets the glory. God is the one that's going to be protecting the nation through what's going on. And so, in any case... That's kind of, we'll move on to the, to the next argument. But when they bring up this idea of Isaiah 26 and act as if this proves that they're going to be protected through the Tribulational period, and we'll go into that a little bit later, because they'll use the Tereo Ek formulation of Romans, not Romans, Revelation 3.10 as an argument for that too. Um, but we kind of already interacted with that, so we're only going to brush up on that. We're not going to go into four weeks of the Greek construction None of a, I don't have the concentration to be able to do that a second time. Um, so in any case, argument number two, that's where we're going to be going next. Um, the argument is that the reference of Paul by Paul of a trumpet at the end supports a post-trib return of Christ. One, a loud trumpet call is mentioned in Matthew 24:31, relating to the gathering of the elect. Two: 1 Corinthians 15 mentions this in relation to the resurrection which will happen after the trumpet sounds. Next, it would be difficult to ignore the parallel between Paul and Jesus' trumpet. This parallel suggests that Jesus' return would coincide with the raising and changing of God's people after the tribulational period. So this is their argument. And we talked about how we'd go over trumpets a couple of weeks ago. This is the reason. So what they're saying is, well, I see a trumpet in Matthew 24, which most people who aren't Arnold Fruchtenbaum would relate to the gathering of the elect at the end of the tribulational period, because they believe that this is a description of the trib when Jesus is answering the question by the disciples of what are the signs of the times and and your return. And so that's kind of the structure that Matthew 24 is going into. So that's the question Jesus is trying to answer. So we know this is talking about the tribulational period and what follows. So they're saying, well, there's a trumpet here, 1 Corinthians 15, which you all quote as the rapture passage, which we do. There's also a trumpet. So, so this should be the same event, especially since 1 Corinthians 15 is a resurrection, and we know that there are going to be people resurrected going into the kingdom. right? So that's kind of the structure of their argument. And it's, it's, a, it's a valid argument. There's a reason that I'm giving airtime to it. Okay, So um, first... Let's look at trumpets a little bit. So let's go to Numbers, chapter 10, very briefly. Um, I think it's kind of important just to kind of see what the trumpets were designed for. Now, people bring all sorts of extra-biblical ideas about trump. just, just as a disclaimer. There are a lot of people who bring extra-biblical ideas of what trumpets are. They basically look through history in that somewhat similar time period, until they find a trumpet that matches what they think it ought to do. Like uh, the gathering of people for war. That's the one they look for. So they go to the Romans. They're like, well, this is what a trumpet meant. Well, we'll we'll look at that in a little bit, but that's not what was being discussed. Okay, I could go through history and find something that fits my narrative too. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to stick to the word of God. So um, chapter 10 of Numbers, the Lord spoke Further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camp set out. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet, if only one is blown, then the leaders of the heads of the divisions of Israel shall assemble before you. But when you blow the alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow the alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. And when convening the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversity who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets but you may be remembered before the Lord, your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feast. And on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord, your God. So there are a lot of reasons they had trumpets. One of the primary two reasons is that a trumpet was used to assemble a people, and another trumpet was used to have the people set out. Now, they had other reasons. Obviously, if they were to blow one trumpet, they'd have one thing happen, two at the same time. Um, a trumpet in whatever an alarm is, some people say that's a different type of um, different type of note, something that they would know and be able to recognize, know, oh my gosh, this is an alarm. Maybe we ought to do the thing we agreed on. So again, they had a lot of reasons for blowing trumpets. So that being said... Um, Depending on whether the people were moving or getting ready to move, the last trumpet, Okay, because that's really what it's talking about, because when we have this discussion, they're, really, they're referring to all of this as the last trumpet. You're going to hear last trumpet more times than you want to. But depending on the circumstance, depending on the context of why they were blowing the trumpet, the last trumpet would be the last trumpet blown for a particular reason it was always categorically limited to this contextual circumstance in which they were blowing the trumpet. If you were just trying to gather the assembly, that would be the last trumpet when you were to blow the trumpets. If you were trying to set out, okay, that would be the last trumpet of the setting out or the going forth, which should make sense. And so last trumpet is a term for a context which is linked to why they were blowing the trumpet in the first place. Just kind of keep that in mind as we're moving forward. So what does Numbers 10 tell us? Essentially two trumpets for gathering for a journey and the other for stopping. Other ones for uh, holy convocations regarding priestly ministry with the Aaronic priesthood, which, again, it's a specific trumpet for a specific purpose. So that being said, uh, Revelation 11 is the next verse they like to bring up because what they say is, well, this is the last trumpet, though it's not notated that way. It says that the last angel sounded is the way 11, or Revelation 11 words it. And they suggest that the uh, seventh trumpet is this last trumpet that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, and by that, I mean, let's just, yeah, let's just go there. I, I want to make that point and then we'll then we'll move on. So Revelation chapter 11. You should all be experts on this right now. Kurt just went over this. So, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and they will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great to destroy those who dwell, or I'm sorry, destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark and his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So, why are they bringing up Revelation chapter 11? Well, first of all, um, what, and Kirk could probably correct me on this, but there is, what, what's the name of the viewpoint that views it, the seal judgments, as a re- recapitulation? That's what it is. So there's a view of Revelation interpretation called recapitulation, which is where you see the seal judgments. They're a representation of the trumpet judgments, which are a representation of the bull judgments. And the reason they do this is actually theological. They don't tell you this. Um, They say it makes sense. There's some similarities between the judgments. um, And then that's what they base that off of. But the reason they do it is this, because if they can make this the last trumpet blown at the very end, then this kind of proves what they're trying to push, which is this idea that this last trumpet is blown with the seventh seal, seventh bowl... And that this is the end of the tribulational period. That's what they believe Revelation 11 is talking about. They have to believe this in order to make their viewpoint work. So that being said, that's not true. That's not how Revelation works. Um, The reason we bring up the idea of a telescope is because as it extends forward, and the reason Jesus refers to it as birth pangs is because when you're in labor about to give birth, they get... They're similar. I mean, one contraction is similar to the next contraction and then the next one. But what happens is you get closer to the crowning and the point of birth. They get worse. They get more painful. They get more severe. They take a larger toll on your body. If you're the husband watching, I mean, it's a very difficult experience. Uh, just, I'm kidding. She, uh, wasted. Julia wasn't even in the room. So, in any case, that's kind of the structure that you have. Um, And that's why Jesus uses that analogy, because it's so good, and it's it's an exact replication of what you see in Revelation. Because you see the seal judgments, which are really bad, the trumpet judgments, which are worse, and then the bull judgments, which are far worse. And they're completely characteristically different if you study them all in context. But if you're looking at them, and you're just putting them over each other like a filter, then... Yeah, if you don't follow basic rules of interpretation when studying the Bible, it could make sense to you. It's part of the reason that Revelation is so complex for a lot of people is they have these people coming in and giving them these non-literal, non-grammatical interpretations of Scripture. Like if you read through Revelation without a preconceived notion, you're going to see it as a sequence of events. You're not going to see it as a recapitulation of a sequence of events. Three times over... Um, So just kind of keep in mind, when you're studying Revelation with a literal, grammatical, historical viewpoint, you're going to see Revelation 11 as the last of a sequence of trumpets, right? Because it's the seventh in that sequence of those judgments. Um, That being said, it's not the last judgment, though, because what comes after? The ball judgments. So there's a complete other sequence of judgments. Now, they're not trumpets. So we can't align them. But the way they look at this is if they want their opinion and their viewpoint to work, this seventh trumpet has to precede the millennial kingdom, has to directly precede it with no other judgments that follow. Because they're, they're doing what? They're linking this to the resurrection of saints. They're linking this to a, a boatload of other things that are connected to the, to the actual end that we see in Revelation 19, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians so just kind of keep in mind, that's the framework of their opinion. That's why they're bringing it up. Um, Henry C. Uh, Teisman says that if he, on this topic in, in particular, says that if he had thought of trumpet as one of seven, he would have undoubtedly have said something like the following. This is talking about 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. That's, that's the context of what he's talking about. He says for when the trumpets will be sounded at the time comes for the last one to sound the dead in Christ shall be raised at any rate there is no ground for identifying the trump in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 with the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 those in revelation introduce fearful judgments upon the world and mankind this one calls for the dead in Christ out of their graves and summons both the ones raised and the believers still living in the Lord's presence so what does that tell us? That there are completely different reasons for the trumpets to be blown. What's more is that there are completely different results. So trumpet A gets blown, and you have A set of events that follows. Trumpet B gets blown, and you get the B set of events. They're completely different descriptions. We see the same struggle in trying to show why the second advent is distinct from the rapture. Again, they say, well, these are just two sides of the same coin. They're talking about the same event. Well, again, they serve different purposes. They're said and presented in different contexts. Revelation, or 1 Corinthians 15, has nothing to do with the tribulational period. It has everything to do with the resurrection, the certainty of our resurrection as believers, knowing that we're going to have resurrected bodies in the future because Jesus had a resurrected body when he rose from the dead out of the grave. So, if the seventh trumpet in Revelation and the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 are supposed to be a reference to the same thing, then why are there many more months of judgment that follow the supposed last trumpet in Revelation 11? That's the question that we need to ask. Now, if you were presented with this viewpoint and this argument, it's easy to see why people come to that conclusion if they're just looking at it on a surface level. Oh, there's a trumpet here, there's a trumpet right here, must be the same event. Well, That's why we need to look a little bit more closely. Um, J. Dwight Pentecost, in his excellent book, Things to Come, when he's not talking about the kingdom, says, um, there seem to be a number of observations which make it impossible for one to identify these two things. One, the trumpet of Corinthians 15 sounds before the wrath of God descends. Well, the chronology of Revelation indicates that the trumpet in Revelation 11 sounds at the end of A time of wrath. I'm, I'm putting A there. Um, the trumpet that summons the church is called the trump of God, while the seventh trump is an angel's trumpet. The trumpet for the church is singular. No trumpets have contextually preceded it. None. Not a single one in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says it the same way. So it can't be said to be the last of a series because nothing preceded it. It's on its own. Now, the trumpet that closes the tribulational period is clearly the last of seven. In First Thessalonians 4, the voice associated with the sounding of the trumpet summons the dead and the living, and consequently it is heard before the resurrection. In Revelation, while the resurrection is mentioned in verse 12, the trumpet does not sound until after the resurrection. That's a big difference. If you're trying to describe an event, that, that would seem to be a very easy place to make a mistake. Like, if you're talking about the chronology of an event, you wouldn't mix it up like that. And Because God doesn't change his mind from Monday to Tuesday, what is the basic interpretive tool that we have to use while we're looking at this? What's the conclusion that we run to? It's talking about two different events, right? Because they're not synonymous. Now, that being said... Um, the trumpet does not sound until after the resurrection, showing us that two different events must be in view. The trumpet in First Thessalonians issues in blessing, in life, in glory, while the trumpet of Revelation issues in judgment upon the enemies of God. In the Thessalonian passage, the trumpet sounds in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the duration of the judgments that fall under it, for John speaks of the angel that shall begin to sound. The trumpet in First Thessalonians is distinct. For the church. Since God is dealing with Israel in particular and Gentiles in general, in the tribulation, the seventh trumpet, which falls in the period of the tribulation, could not have reference to the church without losing the distinctions between the church and Israel. The passage in Revelation depicts a great earthquake by which thousands are slain, and the believing remnant that worships God is stricken with fear. In the Thessalonian passage, there is no earthquake mentioned. While the church will be rewarded at the time of the rapture, yet the reward given to thy servant, the prophets, and to the saints cannot be that event. The rewarding mention of Revelation 8.11 is seen to take place on earth after the second advent of Christ, following the judgments on his enemies. Since the church is rewarded in the air following the rapture, these must be two distinct events. Uh, to close, Thomas Ice says that the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is the final command that Christ provides for his church when he sends the signal to gather us together for the meeting in the sky that we know as the rapture. The context of 1 Corinthians 15 and that of Revelation 11 are totally different from one another. About the only similarity between the two is that the word trumpet is used in both. Actually, the word trumpet is not even used in Revelation 11. The text actually says the seventh angel sounded, clearly implying that a trumpet is sounded, as noted in Revelation 8. The respective contexts are totally different. In 1 Corinthians 15, there is the context of things related to the church age, while Revelation 11 speaks of judgment during the trib. No such silver bullet argument exists for post-tribulationalism because I believe that it is clear from the New Testament, does not teach that view. So, again, what is that, where does that leave us? This is not an argument at all. It sounds like a good argument when they bring it up, because they say, see, this end of this judgment, end of this sequence, there's, there's a trumpet, 1 Corinthians talks about a trumpet too, they must be the same event, they're completely different. Now, we could go exegetically through each verse, look at all of the characteristics of each one of these in the context of the books they're written in, but we don't really need to do that because we already did that. We already looked at the con. We, we didn't look at Revelation 11, but we understand that because we've been going through that as a church. We understand the context. So, when people say, well, their last trumpet, okay, they're doing it not because, and I think, depending on the person that's teaching it, I think they're either being ignorant or they're, being, uh, they're misrepresenting a viewpoint. Um, you'll see a lot of people do that when they don't really understand the argument they're presenting, is they'll jump at straws, they'll jump at similarities, they'll, they'll try to come to a conclusion without first researching. It's a, it's a, you see it a lot with people that don't know a lot about a subject because it's more of a desperate attempt to maintain a paradigm in their own minds. Because nobody likes a paradigm shift. Nobody likes believing something and then realizing they were wrong. Okay? It's a humbling experience. Hasn't happened to me since the last time I had a paradigm shift. So I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. So in any case, we'll close on that. I know we went a little bit long. But that's why when people bring up this idea of a trumpet, they're really not making an argument. They're making a point of similarity and then making a philosophical argument on the basis of that point of similarity. Doesn't fall through when you look at scripture, though. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for giving us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches through your word, through the things that you have taught us. It is absolutely clear that you are going to be coming for your church, the body of Christ, those of us who are in you, in your body, at the point of the rapture. Lord, we pray especially looking around the world, that you would make that happen sooner rather than later. We always pray for your coming, Lord, and we ask that you do it soon. Now, Lord, I ask that you protect us as a country, as we're, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, in a recession right now. A lot of bad things happen when that happens. So, Lord, I ask that you help us to truly trust you in these times, that you would give us the strength to be able to share the gospel and the opportunities to do so. I ask that you help us to truly depend on you and uh, really trust you as we're going through your word, trying to learn more about you so we can be more intimate with you. I pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.